Welcome to volume number one of this Uvula audio presentation of The Stars Are Ours by Andrea Norton. Although few listeners actually voted, the story was the winner in the Uvula audio Choose the Next Story poll that ended December 2011. The Stars Are Ours was written in 1954 and is the first novel in Norton's Astra duology. Mankind has reached the Moon, Mars, and Venus, but found little to justify terraforming. So interplanetary flight was used only for scientific research. However, three space stations provided a number of services, including astronomical and meteorological observations, and refueling interplanetary flights. One of these stations was invaded by unidentified armed men who turned certain installations into weapons, which they unleashed against the planet. A major portion of Earth was completely devastated and the loss of life was incalculable. Among the survivors was Arturo Renzi, who had lost his entire family. He began to preach the evils of science and was welcomed as a great leader throughout the world. However, his message was too liberal for some of his followers, and he was assassinated, apparently by a free scientist. For three days after the assassination, Renzi's followers engaged in a furious purge against scientists and engineers, hunting them down and killing them. Then Saxon Bort, one of Renzi's chief lieutenants assumed command of the leader's forces and established the tight dictatorship of the Company of Pax. The novel follows the events a decade or so later that eventually lead to mankind leaving the solar system and traveling to the stars. Norton's novel contains several of the characteristic tropes of her space adventures that anyone familiar with her stories will recognize. These tropes include special psychic talents and aliens. This story is definitely a little dated, but it is still a pleasure to read, as is its sequel, Starborn. And now, the stars are ours. Book One, Terra, Prologue, excerpt from the Encyclopedia Galactica. The first galactic exploratory and colonization flight came as a direct outgrowth of a peculiar sociological political situation on the planet Terra. As a result of a series of wars between nationalistic divisions, atomic power was discovered. Afraid of the demon they had so loosed, the nations then engaged in so-called cold wars, during which all countries raced to outbuild each other in stockpiling of new and more drastic weapons and the mobilization of manpower into ancient armies. Scientific training became valued only for the aid it could render in helping to arm and fit a nation for war. For some time, scientists and techneers of all classes were kept in a form of peonage by security regulations. But a unification of scientists fostered in a secret underground movement resulted in the formation of free scientist teams, groups of experts and specialists who sold their services to both private industry and government as research workers. Since they gave no attention to racial, political, or religious antecedents of their members, they became truly international and planet instead of nation-minded, a situation both hated and feared by their employers. Under the stimulus of free scientist encouragement, man achieved interplanetary flight Terra was the third in a series of nine planets revolving around the Sun, Sol 1, and it possessed one satellite, Luna. Exploration ships made landings on Luna and the two neighboring planets, Mars and Venus. 
None of these worlds were suitable for human colonization without vast expenditures, and they offered little or no return for such effort. Consequently, after the first flurry of interest, spaceflight died down, and there were few visitors to other worlds, except for the purpose of research. Three space stations were constructed to serve Terra as artificial satellites. These were used for refueling interplanetary ships and astronomical and meteorological observations. One of these provided the weapon the nationalists had been searching for in their war against the free scientists. The station was invaded and occupied by a party of unidentified armed men. Later studies suggest that these men were mercenaries in the pay of nationalist forces. And this group, either by ignorant chance or with deliberate purpose, turned certain installations in the station into weapons for an attack upon Terra. There are indications that they themselves had no idea of the power they unleashed and that it was beyond their control. As a result, major portions of the thickly populated sections of the planet were completely devastated and no one was ever able to reckon the loss of life. Among those who were the sole survivors of an entire family group was Arturo Renzi. Renzi, a man of unusual magnetic personality, was a believer in narrow and fanatical nationalist doctrines. Because of his personal loss, he began to preach the evil of science, with propaganda that the free scientists themselves had turned the station against the earth that had apparently been carefully prepared even before the act and the necessity for man to return to the simple life on the soil to save himself and Terra. To a people already in psychic shock from the enormity of the disaster, Renzi appeared the great leader they needed, and his party came into power around the world. But, fanatic and narrow as he was, his voiced policies were still too liberal for some of his supporters. Renzi's assassination, an act committed by a man arbitrarily identified as an outlawed free scientist, touched off the terrible purge which lasted three days, at the end of which time the few scientists and techneers still alive had been driven into hiding, to be hunted down one by one through the following years as chance or man betrayed them. Saxon Bort, a lieutenant of Renzi's, assumed command of the leader's forces and organized the tight dictatorship of the company of Pax, Unless one was a privileged peace man, they became suspect. Society was formed into three classes, the nobility as represented by the peace men of various grades, the peasantry in the land, and the work slaves, descendants of suspected scientists or technicians. With the stranglehold of pacts firmly established on Terra, old prejudices against different racial and religious origins again developed. All research, invention, and study was prescribed, and the planet was fast slipping into an age of total darkness and retreat. Yet it was at this moment in her history that the first galactic flight was made. See also Astra, First Colony, Free Scientists, Renzi, Arturo, Terra, Spaceflight. Chapter 1. The Roundup. Dard Nordis paused beneath the low-hanging branches of a pine, sheltered for the moment from the worst of the cutting wind. The western sky was striped with color, dusky purple, gold, red, almost as sultry as if this were August instead of late November. But for all their splendor, 
and the colors were as bleakly chilled as the wind whipping his too thin body through the sleazy rags of clothing. He shrugged his shoulders, trying to settle more evenly the bundle of firewood, which bowed him into an old man. There came a tug at the hide thong serving him as a belt. Dad, there's an animal watching over there. He stiffened. To Dessie, with her odd kinship for all furred creatures, every animal was a friend. She might now be speaking of a squirrel or a wolf. He looked down to the smaller, ragged figure beside him and moistened, suddenly dry lips. Is it a big one? he asked. Hands, which wrappings of sackcloth made into shapeless paws, projected to measure off slightly more than a foot of air. So big? I think it's a fox. It must be cold. Could we take it home? Those eyes, which seemed to fill about a quarter of the grimy little face, turned up to his. They were wistful as well as filled with two old patients. He shook his head. Foxes have thick fur for skins. They're warmer than we are, honey. He probably has a home and is going there now. Do you think he could pull the wood all the way down the path? Her mouth twisted in an indignant pout. Course, I'm not a baby any more. It's awfully cold, though, isn't it? Daddy, I wish it was summer again. She gave a quick jerk on a piece of hide and brought into grudging motion the flat piece of battered wood which served as a sled. It was piled high with branches and a few pieces of shredded bark. Not much of a haul today, even combining Desi's bits and patches with his own load. But since their axe had vanished, it was the best they could do. He followed the little girl down the slope, retracing the tracks they had made two hours before. There was a frown drawing deep lines between his black brows. That axe. It hadn't just been mislaid. It had been stolen. But by whom? By someone who knew just what its loss would mean, who wanted to cripple them. And that would be Hugh Foley. But Hugh had not been near the farm for weeks. Or had he? Secretly. If he could only get Lars to see that Foley was a danger. Foley was a landsman, which made him a fanatic servant of Pax. The once independent farmers had always believed in peace. True peace, not from the iron stagnation imposed by Pax. And they had early been won over as firm followers of Renzi. When their sturdy independence had been entirely swallowed up by the strangled controls of those who had assumed command after the death of the prophet. Some had rebelled. Too late. Landsmen were now as proud of their lack of education as they were retentive of the few favors allowed them, and it was from their ranks the hated peacemen were recruited. Foley was a fervent follower of Pax, and for a long time he had wanted to add the few poor Nordis acres to his own holding. If he ever came to suspect their descent, that they were of free scientist blood, if he ever guessed what Lars was doing even now. Daddy, why must we run? Dard caught his breath in a half-sob and slowed. That prick of frantic panic which had sent him plunging down to the main trail still goaded him. It was always this way when he was away from the farm, even for an hour or two. Each time he feared to return to... Resolutely, he closed his mind to the picture his imagination was only too ready to supply him. 
He forced his lips into a set half-smile for Desi's sake. It's going to be dark early tonight, Desi. See those big clouds? Snow, Daddy? Probably. We'll be glad to have this wood. I hope that fox gets home to his den before the snow comes. He will, won't he? Course he will. We'd better too. Let's try to run, Desi, here along the trail. She regarded doubtfully the almost shapeless blobs of wrappings which concealed her feet. My feet don't run very well, Daddy. Too many coverings on them, maybe. And they're cold now. Not frostbite. Not frostbite, he prayed. They'd been lucky so far. Of course, they were always cold and very often hungry, but they'd had no accidents, nor serious illnesses. Run, he commanded sharply, and Desi's short-legged shuffle became a trot. When they reached the screen of second-growth brush at the end of the north field, she halted in obedience to old orders. Dard shrugged off the bundle of firewood and dropped to his hands and knees, crawling forward under cover until he could look down across the broken fieldstone wall to the house. Carefully he examined the sweep of snow around the half-ruined dwelling. There were tracks he and Desi had made about the yard, but the smooth expanse of white between house and main road was unbroken. There had been no invaders since they had left. Thankfully, though without any lessening of his habitual apprehension, he went back to gather up the wood. Is it all right? Desi shifted impatiently from one cold foot to the other. Yeah, it's all right. She jerked the sled into motion and plodded on along the wall where the snow had not drifted. There was a faint gleam of light in one of the windows below. Lars must be in the kitchen. Minutes later, they stamped off the snow and went in. Lars Nordis raised his hand at his daughter, and then his brother entered. His smile of welcome was hardly more than a stretch of parchment skin over thrusting bones, and Dard's secret fear deepened as he studied Lars anxiously. They were always hungry, but tonight Lars had the appearance of a man in the last stages of starvation. Good haul? he asked Dard as the boy began to shed his first layer of sacking, which served him as a coat. Good as we could do without the axe. Desi got a lot of pine cones. Lars swung around to his daughter, who had squatted down before the small fire on the hearth, where she began methodically to unwind strips of burlap, which were her mittens. Now that was lucky. Did you see anything interesting, Desi? He spoke to her as he might have addressed an adult. Just a fox, she reported gravely. It was watching us from under a tree. It looked cold, but Daddy said it had a home. So it did, honey, Lars assured her, a little cave or a hollow tree. I wish I could have brought it home. It would be nice to have a fox or a squirrel or something to live with us. She stretched her small, grime-encrusted, chapped hands over the fire. Maybe, someday. Lars's voice trailed off. He stared across Desi's head at the scanty flames. Dard hung up the cobbled mass of tatters, which was his outdoor coat, and went to the cupboard. He lifted down an unwholesome block of salted meat as his brother spoke again. How are supplies? Dard tensed, 
There was more to that question than was merely routine. He surveyed the pitiful array on the shelves jealously. How much food do you want this time? He asked, unable to keep out of his voice the almost despairing resentment he felt. Maybe enough for two days, if you could put up such a packet. Swiftly, Dar's eyes measured and portioned. If it was really necessary, yeah, we could do it. He couldn't stop that half-protest. The systematic robbing of their own, too scanty hoard for what? Lars could only explain. But he knew Lars's answer to that, too. The less one knew, the better these days. Even in a family, that could be so. All right, he'd make up that packet of food and leave it here on the table. In the morning, it would be gone, given to someone he didn't know and would never see. And within a week, or maybe a month, it would happen again. Tonight? He asked only that as he sawed away at the wood-like meat. I don't know. At the tone of his brother's answer, Dard dropped the dull knife to turn and watch Lars's face. There was a new light in the man's eyes, a brightness about him that his younger brother had never seen since Desi's mother had died two years before. You've finished, haven't you? Dard asked slowly, hardly daring to believe what might be true, that they might be free. I've finished. They'll pass the word and then we'll be sent for. Honey, Dard called to Desi. Bring in the pine cones. We'll have a big fire tonight. As she scampered toward the shed, Dard spoke over her head. There's heavy snow on the way, Lars. So? The man at the table didn't appear worried. Snow's never stopped them from coming before. He was relaxed at peace. Dard was silent, but his eyes flickered beyond Lars's shoulder to the objects leaning against the wall. They were never mentioned, those crutches. But in deep snow, Lars never went outside in the winter. He couldn't. How could they get away unless the mysterious others had a horse or horses? But perhaps they did. That was always his greatest fault. Worrying over the future, borrowing trouble ahead as if they didn't have enough already to go around. Desi was back to feed the fire slowly, one cone at a time. Dard scraped the meat slivers into the iron pot and added a shriveled potato, carefully diced. Then he grew reckless and wrenched off the lid of a can to pour its contents to thicken the water. If they were going away, they'd need feeding up to make the trip, and there would be little sense in hoarding supplies they could not carry with them. Birthday? Desi watched this move in wide-eyed surprise. But my birthday's in the summer, and Daddy's was last month. And yours? She counted on her fingers. It's not for a long time yet, Daddy. Not a birthday, just a celebration. Get the spoon and stir this carefully, Desi. Celebration? She considered the new word thoughtfully. I like celebrations. You gonna make us tea too, Daddy? This is just like a birthday. Dodd shook the dried leaves out on the palm of his hand. Their aromatic fragrance reached him faintly. Mint, green and cool under the sun. He sensed he was different from Lars. Color, sense, certain sounds meant more to him, just as Desi was different in her own way and her ability to make friends with birds and animals. 
He had seen her last summer sitting perfectly still on the wall, two birds on her shoulders and a squirrel nuzzling her head. But Lars had gifts too, only he had been taught to use them. Dard shook the last crumbling leaf from his hand into the pot and wondered for the thousandth time what it would have been like to live in the old days when the free scientists had the right to teach and learn and experiment. It probably had been another kind of world altogether, the one which existed before the big burning, before Renzi had preached the great peace. All he could remember of his early childhood in those days was a vague happiness. The purge had come when he was eight and Lars twenty-five, and after that things got worse and worse. Of course, they'd been lucky to survive the purge at all, belonging to his scientific family. But their escape had left Lars a twisted cripple. He and Lars and Kathia had come here. But Kathia was different. She forgot everything mercifully. And after Desi had been born five months later, it had been like caring for two babies at once. Katya had been sweet and obedient and lovely, but she lived in her own dream world, and neither of them had ever tried to bring her out of it. Seven, almost eight years now they had been here, but in all that time, Dard had never quite dared to believe they were safe. He lived always on the ragged edge of fear. Maybe Katya had been the luckiest one of all. He took over the stirring of the stew and Desi set the table, putting up the three wooden spoons, the battered crockery bowl, the tin basin, and the single chipped soup dish, the two tin cups, and the graceful fluted china one which had been Desi's last birthday gift after he had found it hidden on a rafter out in the barn. It smells grand, Dodd. You're a good cook, son, Lars offered praise. Desi bobbed her head in agreement until her two pencil-thick braids flopped up and down on shoulders where the blades as she moved took on the angular outlines of wings. I like celebrations, she announced. Tonight, may we play the word game? We certainly shall, Lars returned with emphatic promptness. Dar did not pause in his stirring, though he was alert to every inflection in Lars's voice. Did he read a special significance to that last answer? Why did Lars want to play the word game? And why did he himself feel this aroused wariness, as if they were secure in a den while out in the dark danger prowled? I have a new one, Desi went on. It sings. She put her hands down on the table on either side of her soup plate and tapped her little broken nails in time to the words she recited. Hesse, oose, ixi, an, fulsen, falsen, orsen, can. Dard made an effort and pushed the rhythm out of his mind. No time now to see the pattern in that. Why did he always see words mentally arranged in the up-and-down patterns of lines? That was as much a part of him as his delight in color, texture, sight, and sound. And for the past three years, Lars had encouraged him to work upon it, setting him problems of stray lines of old poetry. Yes, that sings, Desi. Lars was agreeing now. I heard you humming it this morning. And there's a reason why Dard must make us a pattern. He broke off abruptly and Dard did not try to question him. They ate silently, ladling the hot stuff into them, lifting the dishes to drink the last drops. But they lingered over the spicy mint drink, 
feeling its warmth sink into their starved, chilled bodies. The light given out by the fire was meager. Only now and again did it reach Lars's face, and shadows were thick in the corners of the room. Dard made no move to light the greased faggot supported by the iron loop above the table. He was too tired and listless. But Desi rounded the table and leaned against Lars's crooked shoulder. You promised the word game, she reminded him. Yes, the game. With a sigh, Dard stooped to pick up a charred stick from the hearth. He was sure now there was suppressed excitement in his brother's voice. With the blackened wood for a pencil and the tabletop for his writing pad, he waited. Suppose we try your verse now, Desi, Lars suggested. Repeat it slowly so Dard can work out the pattern. Dard's stick moved in a series of lines up and down. It made a pattern right enough, and a clear one. Desi came to look and then laughed. Legs kicking, Daddy. My rhyme made a picture of legs kicking. Dard studied what he had just done. Desi was right. Legs kicked, one a little more exuberantly than the other. He smiled and glanced up with a start, for Lars had struggled to his feet and was edging around the table without the aid of his crutches. He looked at the straggling lines. His brows drew together in a frown of concentration. From the breast pocket of his patched shirt, he took out a scrap of peeled bark they used for paper, keeping it half-concealed in the palm of his hand so that what was noted on it remained a secret. Taking the writing stick from Dard, he began to make notations, but the scratchings were all numbers, not words. Erasing with the side of his hand now and again, he worked feverishly until, at last, he gave a quick nod as if in self-assurance and let his last combination stand among the line pattern Dard had seen in Desi's nonsense rhyme. This is important, both of you. His voice was almost a whiplash of impatient command. The pattern you see for Desi's lines, Dard, but these words. Slowly he recited, accenting heavily each word he spoke. Seven, nine, four, ten, twenty, sixty, and seven again. Dard studied the smudged diagram on the table until he was sure it was engraved in his memory for all time. When he nodded, Lars turned and tossed the note chip into the fire, and his eyes met his brother's in a straight, measuring look over the little girl's bent head. It's all yours, Dard. Just remember. But the younger Nordis had only said, I'll do it, when Desi uncomprehendingly broke in. Seven, nine, four, ten, she repeated solemnly. Twenty, sixty, and seven again. Why, it sings just as mine does. You're right, Daddy. Yes. Now, how about bed? Lars lurched back to his chair. It's dark. You'd better go too, Dodd. That was an order. Lars was expecting someone tonight. Dard raked two bricks away from the fire and wrapped them up in charred pieces of blanket. Then he opened the door to the crooked stairs which led to the room overhead. There it was dark and the cold was bitter, but moonlight made a short path from the uncurtained window, enough to show them the pile of straw and ragged bed covers huddled close to the chimney where some of the heat came up from the fire below. Dard made a nest with the bricks laid in to warm it, and pushed Desi back as far as he could without smothering her. 
Then he stood for a moment, looking out across the moonlit snow. They were a safe mile from the road, and he had taken certain precautions of his own to ensure that no sneaking patrol of peacemen could enter the lane without warning. Across the fields were only Foley's place, though that was a lurking danger. Behind loomed the mountains, which, wild as they were, promised safety of a kind. If only Lars were not crippled, they could have gone into the hills long ago. When they first reached the farm, it had seemed a haven of safety. After two years of hiding and being hunted, there was so much confusion after Renzi's assassination that the following purge, with the peacemen busily consolidating their power, that small fry among the remaining techniers and scientists had managed to stay free of the first nets. But now patrols were chroming everywhere, and someday, sooner or later, one would come here, especially if Foley revealed his suspicions to the Red People. Foley wanted the farm, and he hated Lars and Dard because they were different. To be different nowadays was to sign your own death warrant. How much longer would they escape the notice of a roundup gang? Dard was aroused from the blackest of foreboding to discover that he was biting savagely on the knuckles of a bald fist. With two steps, he crossed the small room and felt along the shelf. His heart leaped as his groping fingers closed around the haft of a knife. Not much good against a stun rifle, maybe, but when he held it so, he did not feel completely defenseless. On impulse, he put it inside his clothing against skin which shrunk from the icy metal, and then he crawled into the nest of straw. A sleepy murmur came from Desi. It's Dotty, he whispered reassuringly. Go to sleep. Might have been hours later or minutes when Dard suddenly came awake. He lay rigid, listening. There was no sound in the old house, not even the creak of a board. But he pulled out into the cold and crawled to the window. Something had awakened him, and the fear he lived with put him on guard. He strained to see all the details of the bright white and black landscape. A shadow moved between moon and snow. There was a copter coming down, making a silent landing just before the house. Figures leapt out of it, flitted to the left and right, encircling the dwelling. Dard ran back to scoop Dessie out of the warmth of her bed, clapping his hand over her mouth. Her eyes opened wide with fear as he put his lips close to her ear. Go down to your daddy, he ordered. Wake him. Peaceman? She was shaking with more than cold as she started down the stairs. Say that I think so, and they came in a copter. That was the one thing he had not been able to guard against. Surprise from above. But they had so few of the copters left now, it was forbidden to manufacture any of the pre-purged machines. And why would they use one to raid an insignificant farmhouse sheltering a child, a cripple, and a boy? Unless Lars's work was important, so important that they dared not allow him to pass along his findings to the underground. Dard watched the dark shapes take cover. They were probably all around the house by this time, moving in. They wanted to take the inhabitants alive. Too many cornered scientists in the past had cheated them, so they would move slowly now, slow enough to... Dard's smile was no more than a drawn grimace. He still had one more secret, one which might save the Nordis family yet. Having watched the last of the raiders take cover, Dard ran down into the kitchen. The fire was still burning, and before it crouched Lars. 
They came by air. They have the house surrounded. Dard reported in a matter-of-fact voice. Now that the worst at last had happened, he was surprisingly calm. They don't have that trap completely closed, as they're about to discover. He brushed past Lars and jerked open the cupboard doors. Desi stood beside her father, and now Dard threw her bag. Food. Everything you can pack in. Lars, here. From the pegs, he pulled down all the extra clothing they had. Get dressed to go out. But his brother shook his head. You know I can never make it, Dard. Desi went on stuffing provisions into the bag. I'll help you, Daddy, she promised. Just as soon as I can. Dard paid no attention to his brother. Instead, he ran to the far end of the room and raised the trapdoor of the cellar. Last summer, he explained as he came back to gather up the clothing, I found a passage down there, behind the wall. It leads out to the foundations of the barn. We can hide there. I know we're here. They'll be looking for a move like that, objected Lars. Not after I cover our trail. He saw that Lars was pulling on the remnants of a coat. Desi was almost ready to go, and now she helped her father not only to dress, but crawl across the floor to the hole. Dard gave her a pine-knot torch before he went to work. The doors and all the downstairs shutters were barred. Those ought to hold them just long enough. He took a small can from the cupboard and poured its long-saved contents liberally about the room. Then he withdrew to the head of the cellar ladder before hurling a second blazing torch into the nearest patch of liquid. A billow of fire sent him hurtling down with just enough time to pull the trapdoor shut behind him. As he shoved aside the rotting bins which concealed the opening to the passage, he could hear the crackling above and smoke drifted down through the flooring cracks. A moment later, Desi scuttled into the passage ahead as Dard hauled Lars along with him. Over their heads, the house burned. Those outside might well believe that their prey burned with it. At the very least, the blaze would cover their escape for the precious minutes, which meant the difference between life and death.